0: We're continuing a series for those who may be joining us. Elijah, last prophecy in the Bible. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And then Jesus refers to Elijah. He says, Elijah has come meaning in John the Baptist doing a similar work, and he said, Elijah will come. And I thought that this message is relevant because it it reflects what conditions in the world will be like before there is another great revival. Elijah brought through his preaching and example a great revival among God's people during a time of great compromise when there was a famine for the word of God among the people of God. Now, in our study last night, you remember, uh, Elijah declared to Ahab there would be a famine because of the apostasy. Jezebel had been persecuting the prophets, and uh, they turned away from Jehovah. They were commingling the worship of Jehovah with the worship of Baal, and the famine came. First, Elijah was cared for at a brook on the borders of the Jordan out in the wilderness. Ravens fed him twice a day. They gave him bread and meat. And uh, then the brook dried up, and he went. God directed him to stay with a widow. And, uh, and now he went to a vegetarian diet because then it was just uh, bread and oil. So, getting ready for translation. Do you notice? <laughs> Amazing fact. And while he's there, you notice that while he's at the brook, the natural resources still failed; the heavenly did not. And while he's with the woman, even though God is working daily miracles for them, God's presence is with them, sickness still comes to the boy. Just because bad things happen to good people doesn't always mean that the Lord is against you or it's some punishment, but God turns it for good and the boy is resurrected. We've shown you how that is an allegory of the gospel, that resurrection in the upper room that comes after three and a half years. And so now we're going to go to uh, the rest of our story, and I want you to join me in chapter 18 of 1 Kings. Chapter 18 of 1 Kings. Now, don't you think that woman was thankful that she showed hospitality to Elijah? You know, some people have been saved because they took in strangers. Lot showed hospitality to the angels and it saved his life. Some have entertained angels, meaning messengers of God, unaware. And uh, you've got examples in the Bible um, where Rachel, because she showed sorry, Rebecca, showed hospitality to Eliezer, she ended up becoming a mother in Israel. It was all a test. And so the Bible says, do not be forgetful entertain strangers, and this is a Christian gift. So chapter 18, verse 1, and it came to pass after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. The Lord knew that the famine had become so severe, the people were humbled enough where they would be prepared now for a demonstration of God's power, and to turn their backs on the prophets of Baal but it was going to take extraordinary courage on Elijah's part when it says after three years it means into the third year beyond the third year so we know very well this is three and a half years you can read in the book of James chapter 5 Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months now now I don't want to rush past that time period because it's very significant. When you read in Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 12, you can read in Revelation chapter 11 talks about that same time period. Sometimes it calls it a time, a times, and the dividing of time. A time was a year, a complete season, cycle of the seasons. A times was a pair or a couple two more of years, so it's at a time, that's one, and a times, or a couple, that's two more, and the dividing of a time, I can't do that with my fingers, let me see. That's uh, three and a half. There are 360 days in the Jewish year, keep that in mind, it was a lunar calendar, and we, with a solar calendar, we compensate with a leap year, and, and they compensated by adding an extra month every 13th year, but they managed to stay very accurate, but it was a lunar calendar. So sometimes they say 42 months, sometimes they call it 1,260 days, and sometimes they say three and a half years. Very interesting number. You read about that in Daniel 7. I'm sorry, yeah, Daniel 7:25, A time and a times and half a time, the beast power would be ruling. Daniel 12, verse 7, a time, a times and half a time. Now why is that number significant? Well, several reasons. What is the perfect number for God? 7. 7. God made the world in 7 days. It was it's a perfect cycle. Look at all the sevens you got in Revelation. You got 7 churches and 7 eyes and 7 horns and 7 thunders and 7 trumpets and 7 seals and, and I haven't covered half of it. 7 is the perfect number. An interruption or cutting 7 in half. It's three and a half. It often represents a time of persecution and resistance. Jesus preached for how long? 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. And at the end of it, he was killed. It was a time of persecution and rejection. Three and a half years later, Stephen is taken outside the city. Like Jesus, he prays for his executioners and he's slain after a bad trial. You can read about the time of Elijah, where for 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 months, time where there's a great famine for the word of God. Prophets are being persecuted. Now, what's going on in the palace? Jezebel, this spiritual harlot, I'm using biblical language, Jehu said to the son of Jezebel, as long as the harlotries of your mother... And whenever they went to idolatry, the Hebrews called it harlotry. They are worshiping another god. She was a pagan queen that was trying to bring in false worship to the people of God. She was manipulating the government, Ahab. What happened during the Dark Ages? From 538 to 1798, Revelation 17 says that there's this woman, Mystery Babylon and the Great, the mother of harlots, persecuting the prophets of God, working with the state. She's committed fornication with the kings of the earth. You see it happening during the time of John the Baptist. That was during the same three-and-a-half-year period of Jesus. Herodias, with her daughter, conspired to manipulate the government, Herod, to kill John the Baptist. And the Bible says that Jezebel stirred up her husband to persecute the prophets of God. So please don't miss, this is a very significant time period. You know, you find that time period, have you noticed it in the book of Esther? book of Esther begins with a three and a half year time period. In the third year of the reign of Ahasuerus, the king holds a feast for 180 days. What's half of 360? 180. And at the end of this feast, the pagan queen is overthrown. And a process is initiated eventually to pick a Jewish queen, Esther. The whole book begins with the same time period. And I've argued that even in the book of Jonah, Jesus said the sign of Jonah. Jonah goes into Nineveh, an exceeding great city of three days journey. He enters the city a day's journey, meaning 12 hours daylight. That's three and a half. And then he preaches in 40 days it will be destroyed. Jesus preached three and a half years, and in 40 years, Jerusalem was destroyed. That's a sign of Jonah. So when you see that time period, it's very significant. Now that three and a half years is over, what's going to happen? Well, fire is going to come down and rain is going to come down. What happened after Jesus' three and a half year period? Did fire come down and did rain come down? Rain of the Holy Spirit and fire. We'll be talking more about the Holy Spirit tomorrow. So God tells Elijah, the time has come. Go show yourself to Ahab. So he goes to present himself to Ahab. He makes a trip down from Zarephath down to Samaria. And what he sees along the way is heartbreaking. There are dead cattle everywhere. The only ones eating well were the vultures. People are dying from starvation. Everything is dust, dry grass. The leaves on the trees have all fallen off and withered. It's a pathetic scene, a famine with all of its horrors, very different from when he had first left Ahab. Now, he goes and he goes to present himself to Ahab. You notice it says there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. And it's telling us, parallel, something else is happening. At the same time, Elijah is on his way down. God is arranging a rendezvous. Ahab is getting ready to go out of the city. God wanted to make sure he could meet Ahab, not with Jezebel around. Or this wouldn't have happened. And Ahab calls Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. This is his chief steward. And then it inserts a parenthetical statement. Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Was a dedicated man, for it was what, and his name Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. Isn't that interesting? In the house of Ahab, sometimes we think all the knees have bowed to Baal. God is saying, "I've got my remnant that are still there," and God has His people in high places that we don't know anything about. There are godly people, even in government. I know that's hard to believe. There's probably some there. God has his representatives. He had Joseph and he had Daniel, didn't he? I didn't say they were the majority. We all know better. But God has his people, so don't doubt. And it says, for this was the same Obadiah, that while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah had taken a hundred of the prophets, and you can assume that maybe she massacred even more than a hundred. These are from the sons of the prophets. And hidden them fifty to a cave, and he fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, <clears throat> Go into the land, into all the springs of water, and to all the brooks. Perhaps we might find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive. So we'll not have to kill any livestock. Now, when he says any livestock, he means any more livestock. Because obviously, after this famine, they lost a lot of livestock. But you know, one of the, the, the last of the beasts to die were the kings. You even read another Bible story where it said, see if you can find a couple of horses that can still pull a chariot that aren't dead like all the other animals in the city. And so the king's trying to keep some of his royal animals alive and he sends Obadiah out. People are starving and the king is worried about feeding what? His animals. Elijah's worried about the people. Obadiah is keeping the prophets alive and the king is trying to keep his mules alive. You can tell his priorities are bad. I don't think we'll have time during this week, but Ahab and Jezebel were prepared to kill an upstanding citizen to take his vineyard to plant herbs. They were willing to kill a man for an herb garden. You've heard of Naboth's vineyard. So they were so wrapped up in themselves, they didn't care about their own people. We don't want to have to kill any more of the mules, so they're going out in the country, and you know this is what you would do is um, I don't know if you've ever used that program called Google, Google Earth. And uh, it's, you know, a, it's a program where it takes all the satellite images of the earth and you can zoom in really close. And I use it when I'm going camping because it's really it's really uh, valuable in dry country if the pictures are taken during a dry time of year. Anywhere there's a spring, you'll see kind of a green ribbon out in the, in the meadows. And I've spotted several springs by looking because... You know, even in times of famine, some of the old springs may still have some water. Where there's water, there's greenery, and they thought we can find some grass somewhere to feed these animals and keep them alive a little longer. I was looking at Google Earth one day in Northern California, looking for springs, and just out of curiosity, I zoom around a little bit today. I, I was showing John McCain had his uh, his laptop at lunch. I said, uh, "You want to see something?" I said, "Go over to this address," and we went and looked at a certain town. I said, you see all those little green circles? I said, that's pot. I said, look, I said, why don't you look at this town? And they were amazed because every other house had pot plants in the backyard. You can see it from the air. And I said, you know, what was really disconcerting to me is that as a pastor, I knew where some of my members lived. And I guess they had a prescription for medical marijuana because I could clearly see they were growing in their backyard. Now, that's not where I pastor now. Let's just make this very clear. (laughs) Be sure your sin will find you out. So they're looking for springs. And... um, as they they said, look, we'll cover more country if we split up and we rendezvous somewhere else. And so they split up, and Obadiah went one way, and the king went another way. In verse 7, now Obadiah was on his way suddenly. That's how the God often works. Elijah met him, and he, Obadiah, recognized him. This is one reason we think that Elijah may have been. You see, in our story of Elijah, History's going along, and just Elijah just drops into 1 Kings chapter 17, just tells us about this prophet marching in before the Lord, and we go, where'd he come from? I mean, who is he with? Who's his family? It doesn't say. And as near as we can tell, he was closely associated with the sons of the prophets, because before he goes to heaven, he goes and visits all the schools of the prophets. They knew him. Obadiah, you notice, is rescuing some of the prophets of the Lord, and so when he sees Elijah, he knows who he is. That and Ahab had pictures of Elijah all over the country, as you'll see, trying to find him. You know, like those old Western a dead or alive, probably hand-drawn. And Obadi- Obadiah suddenly saw Elijah, and he recognized him, and he fell on his face, and he says, Is that you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered, It is I. Go tell your master, King Ahab, Elijah is here. And then Obadiah says, How have I sinned that you're delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he's not here, he took an oath from that kingdom or nation that they couldn't find you. And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah's here. It'll come to pass as soon as I'm gone to get him that the spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I don't know, and so I'll go tell Ahab, and then he come and he can't find you, and he'll kill me. He'll think I'm playing with him like crying wolf now you you can see as you read the story of Elijah Elijah does have a way of just sort of disappearing and we guess it was a pattern before also you know God he marches into Ahab and poof he's gone to Cherith and then he goes and he goes up to Zarephath and then he disappears and he goes to Samaria and then he disappears he goes to Mount Sinai and when he finally went to heaven, the sons of the prophet said, you know, he has a way of disappearing. Let's send out some people to look for him. You remember that? So I just want you to know, Obadiah's got reason to worry. He says, the Spirit of the Lord will call you off to something else. And he said, was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets, fifty to a cave, and I fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your master Elijah's here. He'll kill me. (laughs) And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts live, he invokes the name of the Lord again. Before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. Maybe even Obadiah was surprised at the courage of Elijah when he said, go tell the king I'm back. He said, he's been looking everywhere to kill you. And you say, here I am. Come and get me. Elijah says, as the Lord lives, I'll present myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab. He tells Ahab, Elijah wants you to make an appearance. Isn't that interesting? That here the scruffy prophet who's been living in a cave in a lady's attic, he goes and he tells the king, come here, I want to talk to you. He doesn't go to, he didn't say, Obadiah, bring me to Ahab. He says, Obadiah, bring Ahab to me. You know, that's usually a symbol of the greater summoning The lesser. Because Elijah served a different king. And he said, Go tell him to come. Now, Ahab, (laughs) it says, When Ahab, Obadiah went to get Ahab, and he says, Ahab went to meet Elijah, he obeys. Now, you might be wondering, why did Ahab do that? Uh, When you read your Bible, you'll remember that some of these prophets, for instance, the first king of the northern kingdom. His name was Jeroboam. We talked about him already. Do you remember when he set up uh, golden calves in Bethel and Dan, that a prophet of the Lord, never even tells us the name of this prophet, says a prophet of the Lord came from Judah. And while Jeroboam was making an offering to a golden calf, they called it Jehovah, but it's to a golden calf, and he's got all these counterfeit priests around him, that the prophet comes up and he pronounces a curse on the altar and he says, oh altar, altar a king will be born, Josiah by name and he will burn the bones of these priests on you and he pronounces a curse right there during the church service while the king is presiding and the king is so outraged at this audacious prophet, he holds out his hand and says, seize him! You remember what happened? Jeroboam? His hand froze. It shriveled. He couldn't pull it back in. He went, oh, what's wrong? And he couldn't move his arm. And when he realized that he had just been stricken by the Lord, all of a sudden he says to the prophet, pray for me. That the Lord will heal me. His whole attitude changed. You know, affliction will do that to you pretty quickly. And so uh, another prophet came to a man, one of the sons of the prophets, and he said, strike me in the name of the Lord, strike me. I said, I'm not going to do that. He said, well, you didn't obey the word of the Lord. A lion's going to get you now. He walked away and got killed by a lion. The prophet goes up to another man. He says, strike me, thus saith the Lord. He said, okay. <laughs> so when Elijah says, it will not rain these years except at my word, and then there's no rain for three and a half years, and then Elijah says, come here, I want to talk to you. He said, okay. Ahab probably wasn't very happy about it, but he came. Because Elijah had power and he knew it. But when he sees him, verse 17, I'm in 1 Kings 18, verse 17, it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Now, did Ahab serve the Lord or did he serve the devil? Elijah was causing trouble for Ahab. But Elijah was bringing the people back to God. He wasn't the troubler of Israel, but he was a troubler of the devil. Now, how many of you want the devil to know who you are? I see some of you looking around. You're going, I do. You mean you want to live a life that's so placid and relaxed that the devil doesn't even know who you are? Do you remember one time that some um, young men tried to cast out a devil? There's this demon-possessed man, Acts chapter 19, the sons of Sceva. And they said, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, come out. Well, they really didn't know about Jesus. They just thought, oh, Paul's casting out devils in the name of Jesus. Let's try that. They had no relationship with Jesus. They thought it would be like some magic abracadabra. You've probably heard people pray this way. They just think they can invoke the name of Jesus and get whatever they want. And the demon answered and said, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but I don't know you. So do you want the devil to know who you are? Don't you want to live? Now, I know what you mean. you got mixed feelings, don't you? I mean, you're probably thinking, you know, Doug, it seems like he already knows who I am because I have all kinds of problems. Probably one of his fallen angels knows who you are because the devil's not all-knowing and he's not omnipresent. So the devil's working through his imps and his demons. But uh, the devil knows some people. The devil knew who Paul was. I think the devil knew who Billy Graham was. Are you living a life that is a threat to the devil? Don't you want to? You got mixed feelings. I know what you mean. (laughs) Ahab said, you're the troubler of Israel. No, he was the troubler of Ahab. And Elijah, instead of cowing, because here the king is angry, he gets right back up in Ahab's face. And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you are following the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. See, Jezebel starving the prophets of God, killing them, but feeding her prophets. Look at the bold audacity of Elijah. It's like John the Baptist when John the Baptist told Herod it is forbidden for you to be married to Herodias because you took her from your brother Philip. How dare anybody tell the king that you should not be doing that. It's called adultery. And you can understand why Herodias didn't like him very much. You know, I'd like to just take a detour for a moment because I think there's something we can learn from Elijah I don't want to miss. And it's boldness christians should pray for boldness i'm not talking about baldness <laughs> boldness you know the bible tells us if you read in acts chapter 4:29, the disciples said lord when they were arrested for preaching about jesus they were told not to preach in jesus name anymore They said, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto your servant that with all boldness that we might speak your word. Don't be bashful and timid about sharing what you believe. Then they pray in Acts 4.31. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness because they just prayed for boldness. Ephesians, you know about the armor of God? Listen to what it says in Ephesians 6:18. Paul says, and the last implement we pray for is all prayer, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, what's he specifically praying for? That utterance might be given to me that I might open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm am an ambassador in chains, that I may boldly speak as I ought to speak. You know, the Bible says that like Paul and like Elijah, God's people will be brought before kings and rulers. God wants the message to go to high and low. And people will respect and appreciate if you are honest and bold about what you believe. Don't be ashamed. Don't forget you always are answerable to a higher tribunal in God. It doesn't matter what people think of you. All that matters is what God thinks of you. And it's easy. The devil tries to intimidate us into timidity where we're afraid and, and we're, we don't want to offend. And, and that's very dangerous. Basil King wrote in his book, Conquest of Fear, go at it boldly and you'll find unexpected forces closing around you and coming to your aid. George Whitfield said, I am immortal until my work is done. People said, you know, they're trying to stone you. They're going to kill you for your outside preaching. The Church of England is enraged at what you're doing. He said, I'm not afraid. I am immortal until my work is done. And as long as you're under the protection of God, and this was the attitude of Elijah. He wasn't afraid of 800 prophets of Baal and prophets of Asherah or the king because he knew he was surrounded by chariots and horses of fire. Someone once said that uh, too many preachers today are spineless and wimpy. Peter Marshall, who was that great uh, preacher, also a pastor in Congress, he describes 20th century Christians in these words. He said, they're like deep sea divers that are encased in suits designed for many fathoms, marching bravely forth to pull the plugs out of bathtubs. It's like they've got all this equipment to go into the dark abyss And they wear it to pull plugs out of bathtubs. God has given us the power of his spirit to do great things. And we don't think of anything great. We attempt little things. When they came and they hadn't arrested Jesus, they said, lo, he speaks boldly. And they say nothing to him. Do not the rulers know that he's the Christ? So when I'm talking to you about boldness, who is our example of the ultimate boldness? Don't be ashamed of what you believe. God is looking for people that will not be ashamed of him, that will speak up. Is the world bold about its values? Is the culture bold about pushing obscene, degrading, disgusting things? Why are we so ashamed to speak up for Christ? Be brave. Spurgeon's boys came back from a revival in northern England, and he said, how did it go? They said, good, we had had a good revival. He said, were many converted? Not many. He said, did they get angry? No, they were very pleasant. Father said, well, look, if they weren't converted and they didn't get angry, then you didn't do anything. Wherever Paul went, there were conversions and riots. If you did not have conversions, you had a riot. If they were not listening to him, they were arresting him. So are you sure you want to be bold? Abraham Lincoln coming home from church one day, was riding with his secretary, it was a man, the secretary, and and he said, "Uh, Mr. President, how did you feel about the message today? Lincoln said in his very direct way, I didn't care much for it. And he said, well, this pastor's a pretty famous orator. And he said, yeah, but he didn't ask me to do anything great. We need to all be challenged to greatness by the Lord. And people want to be encouraged to do something great. God is calling us to be bold. Let me me give you something here to uh, consider. This is from the book Prophets and Kings. After Elijah says to Ahab, you are the troubler of Israel. Standing in conscious innocence before Ahab, Elijah makes no attempt to excuse himself or to flatter the king, nor does he seek to evade the king's wrath by the good news that the drought is almost over. He has no apology to offer indignant and jealous for the honor of God he cast back the imputation of Ahab fearlessly declaring to the king that his sins and the sins of his fathers is what has brought upon Israel this terrible calamity I have not troubled Israel Elijah boldly asserts but you and your father's house in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed Balaam therefore there is need today of the voice of stern rebuke For grievous sins have separated the people from God. If that was true when she wrote it, you wonder how true it is today. The smooth sermons often preached make no lasting impression. The trumpet does not give a certain sound. Men are not cut to the heart by the plain, sharp truth of God's word. We need to let the truth cut. David stands before Goliath, and Goliath stomps and fumes and says, I'm going to cut you to pieces and feed you to the birds. And most of us would run and cower, and David stood right back up to the giant and said, no, let me tell you how this is going to end. He says, I am going to take you down, and I am going to cut off your head, and I'm going to feed you and the army of the Philistines to the birds. Wow. God, give us boldness. We should be praying that again. Amen? Amen. The world is dying for a knowledge of the truth. God has given the Seventh-day Adventist movement the truth. We should not be ashamed or timid about it. People will respect us more. You know, I, I frequently go to um, uh, a meeting, about once a year they have a meeting called Religious Broadcasters, and many of the leading religious broadcasters in North America go to this meeting. And, um, and you know, I name names, I'm friends with a number of the ministry leaders, we may respectfully disagree on some things, but there's some good people out there. Uh, And I still think that in the last days many of them love the Word of God, they're going to take a stand. And so I'm optimistic. The thing is that uh, I don't make any effort to apologize who I am or what I believe. They all know. They all know where I stand. They all know where I stand on the Sabbath, and the state of the dead, and the punishment of the wicked, in hell. And I'll tell you, and Karen's here with me, she can testify because she stood with me when these things have been said. We've had them walk up to us and they go, I agree with you on the Sabbath. Or another one, thank you, I'm a vegetarian now. Sometimes it takes a heart attack for them to listen to my sermon. But you know, you listen a lot more carefully after they've moved your plumbing around. But we've had some wonderful testimonies and I, I, you know, I don't want to name any names because that wouldn't be appropriate, but I can tell you they're listening But it's because we are not apologizing for what we believe. We need to be preaching the full three angels' message. People out there want to know. And you'll get results if you do. Jesus said, the harvest is great. The labors are few. The world is starving for the principles of truth God has given this movement. All right, enough about boldness. Let's go back to Mount Carmel. He tells the king, gather everybody to me. And the incredible thing is the king says, okay. And he summons all of Israel. Ahab sends for all the children of Israel, all ten tribes. Messengers go out and heralds. All the starving people come limping up to Mount Carmel. Kara and I were there with Pastor Ross and some others about three weeks ago. And Elijah came to all the people and he said, you got all the people gathered. The meeting probably begins in the morning at some point. And they're very anxious, or wondering, this is the man who has called down the curse on the nation, they don't know, is he going to utter something even worse, there's a lot of foreboding, and, and they're all gathered, and he's on a prominent spot on the hill where they can all see and hear him, and he stands, and with his voice, amplified by the Holy Spirit, he asks them a penetrating question, how long do you halt between two opinions? He says something very politically incorrect. Everybody wondered who's in charge. Is it God or is it Baal? I mean, you know, they were supposed to be the people of God and they're sort of kind of mixing up the worship of God with Jezebel pushing the worship of Baal. And and it's amazing how sad it is that the people of God who had the Bible, they had the truth. They they were God's people. They were God's movement. To them had been committed the oracles of truth. And they'd gotten mixed up in idolatry. They had compromised with the nations around them. Now, that would never happen to us, right? How long do you halt between two opinions? Are you going to serve the Lord are you going to serve the world? The world is the idol that many people are serving. And the word halt there means how long are you going to limp? It's like you're going, yeah, I want to, no, I'm not sure, but maybe, you know, you can't make up your mind and you're limping back and forth between two opinions. You're not getting anywhere. And he says, look, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. It's like when Joshua said, if you want to serve the gods from the other side of the Euphrates, you go ahead, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people said, God forbid. They answered Joshua, God forbid that we should serve other gods. But now Elijah poses this question, and the compromise has gotten so deep, nobody said a thing. Kind of looked around and thought, You know, Jezebel is still in the palace, and if I should speak up and say, Jehovah, they're they're going to put a mark on me. And everybody is so afraid that even if there may have been a silent majority, they were afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to stand for the truth and share your convictions. Nobody answered him a word. So Elijah goes on, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, he didn't want to talk about the hundred that were hidden in a cave. And Baal's prophets are 450 men. He didn't even mention the prophets of Asherah, which was another 400. Let them give us two bowls, two sacrifices, and let them choose one for themselves. You pick whichever one you want. Cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I'll prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. You call in the name of your gods, and I will call... It, notice he says gods. And I will call in the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Let's put it to the test. You want to settle this? Let's settle it today. Let's find out who is the real God. Wow. That'd be a pretty outrageous thing. He must have known God was telling him to do that. And it says, the people said... It's well-spoken. Let's settle it. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you choose a bull for yourselves and you prepare it first because you're many, and you call on the name of your God and put no fire under it. So they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it, and he's watching very carefully as they lay the wood down to make sure they're not doing anything funny there, trying to get some spark or coals, slip a coal in there and blow air on it or anything. And you call on the name of Baal, and so they did it, and they called in the name of Baal from morning till noon, and they prayed over and over again. Oh, Baal, hear us! Oh, Baal, hear us! Except they probably had music going along with it, and they're going, Oh, Baal, hear us! Boom, boom! Oh, Baal, hear us! Boom, boom! Trying to get everyone into a, re- a lather. Jesus said, "Pray not in vain repetition as the heathen do." thinking they'll be heard for their much speaking. That doesn't mean you can't pray the same prayer many times. you probably prayed many things. How many times have you asked God to bless your food? And you pray for your loved ones and children. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about these senseless, mindless, repetitive prayers. Old Baal hears, old bail hears. That would get old pretty quick. I mean, 10 minutes of that and I'd be done. But they did it till noon. No bail hear No voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar that they made. They realized they were losing the attention of the people, so they tried to increase the, the show. And have you ever seen that? A pastor has no substance, so he tries to compensate with volume? Or if he has no substance, he tries to compensate with hand gestures? I was doing an evangelistic meeting in a church many years ago, and I got up and spoke that night after the pastor had spoke that morning, he left his notes on the podium, and in his notes it said, "Wave arms." <laughs> <laughs> you compensate, just raise the volume. And so they, they can't they realize they have no God. people are losing their attention, So now they're leaping as though they could grab the rays of the sun and pull them down and then ignite the the wood. And so it was at noon. Elijah was very patient. He mocked them. This is a little bit of sanctified sarcasm, I suppose. And he said, cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's meditating, or he's busy. I think in some translations it says, or he's covering his feet. Which happened when the person went to the restroom. So he's really mocking their god. Or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's sleeping. You need to wake him up. Cry louder. Cry louder. See, at this point, the people are starting to think, wow, Elijah's brave. Here he is, he is mocking the religious leaders of the country saying, your God is no God at all. You know, I really appreciate when God called Gideon. And uh, God said to Gideon, look, I'm going to use you to do great things, but you realize your dad has got an altar to Baal near the threshing floor, and Gideon Knocked it down. The next morning, the people of the town said, who dared knock down the altar of Baal? And Gideon's father said, look, if Baal, they're going to kill Gideon. They found out he did it. Gideon's father said, look, if Baal's a god, you don't need to plead for Baal. Let Baal plead for himself. And Gideon ended up with a nickname, Jeroboam. In other words, if you plead for Baal, if he's God, let him plead for himself. And Elijah's saying, look, if your god's so powerful, why come nothing's happening? So now they're really, they're in a frenzy. They're tired. They're probably some of the best-fed people in the country because they ate from Jezebel's table. So they cried aloud and they cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. God does not want us to defile our bodies. You can read what the devil did to the demoniac in Acts, I'm sorry, Mark chapter five says he cut himself with stones. Self-mutilation is part of pagan worship. And can I be very honest with you, friends? Now, I realize what I'm going to say here is going to involve a number of people here, and I hope you still want me to tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not to print tattoo marks on your body, and you're not to make cuttings or holes in your flesh. God Created you with the appropriate number of holes. He does not want you to change that number. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I know that it's very fashionable today. People think that their bodies are a canvas to draw on. Your body's a temple. If you had taken a can of spray paint back in the time of Christ and gone and tried to add art to the simple, beautiful marble on the temple, you're not supposed to do that. Someone came up to me the other day after I shared this message and they said, but look, I've I've tattooed scripture on me. That doesn't work either, friends. I'm sorry. God says, if you're upset with Pastor Doug, you read the verse yourself in Leviticus. It even in most versions says you shall not, not print tattoo marks on your body. Now, Don't be mad at me for telling you what the Bible says. Amen? Am I your enemy because I tell you the truth? But it seems like on every street corner, it's a fad right now. And often people regret that. A few years later, I remember back, you know, I did did a lot of really dumb things. I won't list for you right now. But for some reason, I never was tempted to get a tattoo, and I never pierced my body. I had friends that would tattoo their girlfriend's name. And they'd break up with her a month later. Then they'd try to change that tattoo and make it the new girlfriend's name. And it looked really strange. And I could see right away, this was a losing proposition. I remember as a kid, seeing some of these old sailors that would like tattoo a battleship on their bicep, and then their bicep would sag. And it looked like the ship was sinking. (laughs) I just thought, you know... Anyway, ask me how I feel. So they cut themselves, and the blood is gushing out. God doesn't want that blood. The only blood that's going to wash away our sin is the blood of Jesus. And it was about midday. They prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. He let them go on and on, so everyone was weary of it. They got tired of these overfed priests at the government expense with no results. And he he was wise to let him go. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one even paid attention. All that was happening, is flies were buzzing all over the sacrifice, and the vultures were circling overhead. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. Now, Elijah is a type of God. And God is saying to you and I, come to me. The Bible promises if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. James chapter 4. Jesus in the great invitation says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. They were so weary of all the forms of religion with no power. They were jumping and leaping and doing all this stuff, but there was no power. They had a lot of ceremony, but no power like this vacuum cleaner salesman that was going through the country and he was selling vacuums and he had, a, um, he had a pretty good sales gimmick, he was very pushy and he'd knock on a door and usually the lady of the house would open the door and he'd somehow get his foot in the door and he'd say, just, just a moment, just a moment, he'd get in the door, he'd take a little bag of dirt and he'd dump it on the carpet and he'd say, now don't worry, he says, this Electrolux vacuum is going to suck up every bit of that or I will eat it with a spoon. And he'd often, he was very convincing, it was a powerful vacuum and he sold a lot of vacuums. And he went to a new region on the outskirts of town and he got his foot in the door and, and the farmer's wife crossed her arms and, and uh, didn't know what in the world he was up to. And he came in without even asking her permission. He dumped the dirt on the floor and he said, don't worry, don't worry. If this vacuum doesn't vacuum all that up, I will eat it with a spoon. She walked away, came back from the kitchen with a spoon. She says, mister, we have no electricity in these parts. Some of us have all the forms and no power. You've got to have the power. And it came to pass, he tells all the people, come near. And verse 30, so they all drew near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. He's including also the three from the southern kingdom. Whom the word of the Lord had come saying Israel shall be your name. God never intended for them to be divided. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. You notice he's building back the altar that had once been there on Mount Carmel. And you know it's such a sad picture that here you've got all the thousands of the people of Israel. They're watching this lone prophet. Wrestling these 12 stones, big stones, into position. They were to be stones on which a man's chisel had never been lifted. You were not to lift a tool on it, lest you be tempted to make an idol. And they were just natural stone. Daniel says that there is a stone cut out of the mountain without man's hands, talking about, again, God's truth. The altar that had broken down. The altar of Jehovah was broken down. Before the miracle could happen, the altar had to be restored. Before the fire fell, the altar had to be restored. Do you have an altar in your family? Well, you probably all got altars. The question is, is it an altar to the Lord? Some of us have a one-eyed altar to Baal called a television where we worship hours every day. But we don't have time for family worship. If you really want the Holy Spirit to lead in your life, if you want the fire to fall and if you want the rain to fall, perhaps you need to repair the altar of the Lord. Do you have regular times for prayer and reading of the word of God? Do you, they used to have morning and evening sacrifice. Do you kneel? And of course, Daniel, three times a day, he knelt and he prayed, he worshiped. That's what it means to have an altar. It doesn't mean you need to have a a pile of stones in your living room. And where your altar is could be different for every member of the family. I wake up, I go to the office, and I kneel and I pray. Karen, she stays upstairs, and she kneels on the bed. We don't have an upstairs anymore. We moved. For years it was upstairs, and now we we don't have an upstairs. But she stays in the bedroom, and she... We've lost our upper room. But she stays in the bedroom. She has her books all spread out, and she, she has her worship. And we would tell the kids every morning... And they'd they'd have their devotions. Then we come together and we pray. If the father, one of the parents, has to travel, then the other parent ought to be leading out in worship. But presenting your lives to the Lord, saying, Lord, you are our God. We worship you every day, saying, you know, in spite of our mistakes, Lord, we're trusting in you today for power. In the evening, sometimes you're asking God for mercy. But you're worshiping God, and the angels see it. And then you invite people into your homes, and they see it. A couple of weeks ago, Karen and I had a friend in our home that uh, is one of the leading, I won't tell you the name, one of the leading record sales ladies in history. And it was Friday night, and we said, we're going to have worship now. We have worship in our home. And we sat down, and she was delighted to join us. We sat down, and we read, we knelt, and we prayed. Do you have an altar in your home? Do you worship, or has it broken down? If you want to see the miracle of God's power, maybe you need to restore the altar of the Lord. Seek first his kingdom and watch what he does. And he put the wood on the altar. And the bull was sacrificed and the pieces were laid on it. And then Elijah does something a little strange. He says, now fill four water pots with water. And they have these large jars and they filled it with water and they poured it on the sacrifice. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. After how many days did Jesus rise? So the water all ar- ran all around the altar, and it filled the trench. He built a moat, basically, around this altar. He absolutely saturated the wood. He saturated the sacrifice. It ran out and created mud and filled the, the, uh, the moat with water around it, because he didn't want anybody saying, oh, it was a trick. When God does his miracles, he removes all doubt. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near. He knelt and he prayed, and he said, all right, does someone have a stopwatch on your watch? If I were to ask you to time me, could you time me? Who has something like that? I got one. You want me to do it? You got one? All right, when I say go, start timing. You got it on your clock here. You tell me when you're ready. Ready? Go. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that these people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to them again. Stop. How long? 20.9 seconds. How long had the prophets of Baal been praying? What makes our prayers effective? Is it their length or the sincerity? So when you're asking God for mercies, he's saying you need to pray a long prayer or you need to be heartfelt. Sincerity, earnestness is what God wants. The Lord wants a contrite heart. Our personal prayers ought to be the longer ones. Public prayers should be short. Jesus talked about the publicans, Pharisees rather, who like to pray long prayers in public to try to get the praise of the people. I am always amazed. How short this prayer is. You ever time the Lord's Prayer? I mean, it doesn't mean you need to pray short prayers, but I think the main thing that really counts in prayer is pour out your heart to God. Be sincere. Tell Him what's on your mind. Have you ever heard somebody commend a musician because of how long they played? Wasn't that wonderful? It was so long. Nobody commends them for playing long. They commend them for playing well. Right? And so what God wants from us is our sincerity. He says, hear me, O Lord, hear me, and let them know that you have turned their hearts, that you have turned their hearts back to you again. As soon as he gets done praying, oh, I want to see this, I want to see this uh, DVD when I get to heaven, the playback of this event. They're on top of Mount Carmel, the people are all starving, they're exhausted, they're worn out emotionally. Even the prophets of Baal are looking anemic. And there from a cloudless sky that afternoon, suddenly a bolt of lightning like a giant arc welder comes raging down with blinding light. It strikes on top of the sacrifice. It burns up the sacrifice. It burns up the wood. It burns up the stones. It burns up the water that was in the ditch and it leaves a smoldering crater. And as the steam And the smoke are dissipating. The people in shock fell on their faces. And they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Was there any question in their minds? Who was the real God? This all happened after they repaired the altar of the Lord. Even after a time of famine, when they turned back to Elijah. And you know what Elijah's name means? My God is Jehovah. Jehovah. What they're basically saying is a play on words in the story. Basically, they're saying the same thing Elijah's name says, that Jehovah is the true God. Jehovah is the true God. And what happens next? Elijah says to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Now, if you were a prophet of Baal and that just happened, you've been going at it all day long and nothing, and then you see the fire of Jehovah come down, you would instantly be aware you were probably praying that nothing was going to happen when Elijah did his, um, had his turn. And when that fire came down, you would have been overwhelmed with a dread and a terror that here you've been serving the wrong God. Many of them, most of them I suspect, knew it. And they were probably backing away from the crowd, trying to look inconspicuous and saying, you know, we just noticed we got another appointment. Sorry, we have, please excuse us. We've got to leave right about now. And Elijah saw them all trying to slink off, and he said, seize them. He knew he would never have another moment. If he waited until Jezebel's power became re-entrenched, she would never allow it. She refused to come when he summoned everybody. He said, seize them. He knew he had the people on his side. They had just seen the power of God. The moment needed to be, he needed to exploit the moment. Because if there was going to be a reform and the idolatry was going to be eradicated, then they needed to take advantage of that time. And they brought them down to the brook Kishon, which is right there at the base of Mount Carmel. And all of them were summarily executed. I thought it's important to include that because part of revival is going to mean getting rid of the idols in your life. You come to camp meeting spiritually enriching, it can be enriching to fellowship. You hear wonderful messages on so many facets at a, a time like this. But if at that same time you allow the Baal worship in your home to remain entrenched, don't miss this opportunity to execute the idolatry. Certain things must be eliminated. Paul would go through a town and he'd preach and they would bring out all of their books on sorcery and they burned them. You want to see a revival take place, is there music you shouldn't be listening to, and you know it? Are there books you're reading? Programs you're watching? Whatever it happens to be, this is the great opportunity to get a new beginning. Don't let it pass. While the Holy Spirit is still warm in your heart, make a commitment. Say, Lord, there's some things I know need to go, and by your grace right now, I want to eliminate those things. Heard years ago about a boy that uh, he was with his father as the father was setting a bear trap in the woods and, you know, bear traps, the old bear traps, very powerful, spring-loaded clamp, powerful enough to snap down on a bear's foot and hold them. They'd chain it to a tree, they'd hide it under some leaves, put some bait on it and the father told the boy, you know, this bear had been menacing their family and the house and the ranch and he said, Now, don't come near this trap. They hid it under the leaves and said, don't, check on it. if the bear is in there, he said, you just, you know, let me know. Well, uh, the boy couldn't resist. And the next day, he came to check on the trap. But the wind had blown the leaves around a little bit and he couldn't remember exactly where the trap was. So he knew the trap was powerful. He took a stick and he thought, I'll see if I could poke around and just move some leaves, find out where the trap is. Maybe the bait is gone now. He couldn't see it. In the process, he was in the wrong spot. He triggered the trap and it slammed down on his finger. Just, he pulled it away as quick as he could but it slammed down on his index finger. And uh, he screamed and he howled and uh, he knew he couldn't pull that chain off the tree. His father had securely attached it. Uh, And he whimpered and he cried and then it began to rain. Well, the trap had been set by a bear trail right by a creek, and it began to rain very hard. And the father didn't know where the boy was, and, and the water began to come up, and uh, he knew if he didn't do something drastic, the water was soon gonna be swirling around his legs, and, and he would drown. Well, he did have his camping knife on him, and the boy had to make a very difficult decision Do I keep my life and lose my finger? Do I save my finger and lose my life? It's not a hard decision to make, but it's a difficult decision. What did Jesus say? If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right foot offends you, cut it off. What profit is it to you if you enter hell with all your body parts? What good will it be? You're better off going to heaven missing an eye, a foot, or a hand. You realize this is a metaphor. Jesus is saying, if there's something in your life, no matter how dear it is, maybe some of you have a relationship, you've got a boyfriend or girlfriend that is not a believer and you know they're dragging you down and you, you really care about them, cut it off. If it's going to destroy you spiritually, amen? If you know something is dragging you down, if something is pulling you away from Jesus, what profit is it? How long will you wait? People say, well, yeah, someday I'm going to have to deal with that. One of these days I'm going to have to deal with that. And it's often true the devil's most effective strategy is one of these days never comes. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. How many of you would like to say, I want to be a real Christian. I'm going to have a special prayer after John sings. And uh, I want you to be thinking and praying in your hearts. Is there something in your life? Would you like to experience that fire, that spirit coming in your life? That can happen. You know, I'm going to make a, um, an appeal tonight. First, I'd like to start with a general invitation. If the Holy Spirit has spoken to you tonight, and you want to receive the fire of His Spirit in your life, you want that purging, you want that new beginning, you want the power and the rain to come back again, would you be willing to stand in His presence? Amen. But now I'd like to be a little more specific. And there may be some of you here, you know that there's something specific in your life that you need to put on the altar. Maybe you need to be repairing the altar in your home. And you know it's gonna take the grace and power of God to break the chains and set you free, to give yourself fully to him, or to sacrifice that thing to him, whatever it is. And you'd like to ask for special prayer. We'd like to invite you to come as he sings his verse. And we'll have a special prayer for you. Come. Chances are some of you are wrestling with that decision. Folks are thinking, well, I, I, that's my prayer, Pastor Doug, but I don't really need to come up. We invite people to come publicly because you are actually, you're doing something where you're giving God permission to activate his power in your life when you bear testimony. You're taking a step And you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Everybody Jesus calls, he did it publicly. And if you'd like to publicly say, I want to make that decision now. I know there's something, Lord. I want to make a complete surrender. There's a change that I need. Give me that change. Tonight can be that pivot point. Please come. And I apologize, I've gone a little long. But I think this is very important. We'll have closing prayer. I see people moving. I believe that's the spirit of God moving. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for this story in your word about this this man. You promised that he was subject to the same passions and weaknesses we all have, and yet you did such mighty things through him because he surrendered to you. The word of God was in him. The word of God guided him. Help us be like that now. Lord, we we need Elijah's in these last days. We see compromise in our hearts, compromise in the world, in the church, we pray you'll bring revival. Help us to repair and restore the altars that have been broken down. If there's some idols in our home, if we've got some priests of Baal that need to be eliminated, help us to identify what those things are, Lord. And then I pray you grant us the grace to make these changes. Lord, I know that you can look into every person's heart all at the same time as though they are the only one in the universe. Give them your undivided attention. Each of these people who have come forward, Lord, speak to them right now. Encourage them. Help them know that you are a living God and that through faith they can experience your righteousness and victory. And so be with them and bless them. Help them make whatever changes they need. Thank you for these sacred Sabbath hours. We claim and thank you for the blessing you promised. And be with us now throughout this Sabbath day. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.